All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right, well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. Again, we are formally Theology Doesn't Suck. So if you haven't been with us for a few weeks and you're thinking you're listening to Theology Doesn't Suck, technically you still are. But uh, we have a new name, Rethinking Faith. Uh, if, if you're not up to date on that, go check out our episode we did about the name change and it'll explain everything. Uh, but I promise it's still the same great show. Maybe I'm biased uh, with uh, the same great hosts. Well, at least one great host, and that's Marty Frederick. And then myself, Josh Patterson. Marty, I bet you thought I was going to make fun of you. I, you know, I, I never know these days because sometimes you do and sometimes you're really, really kind. Um, but, you know, I just know that, Josh, I don't appreciate bullying and like I'm not a fan of bullying culture. So I'm glad that you didn't make fun of me. Instead, you just you just said something kind. Nice. Well, I'm, I'm glad, man. I'm trying to work on my my kindness. Josh, and speaking just of kidding. kindness. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of kindness, can you can you just like I know we have a, an awesome guest today that we want to get to, but sometimes we like to banter for a minute ahead of time. And your shirt is pretty cool. Can you okay. talk about the shirt you're wearing? Since like nobody can actually see it except for me and our guest. Yeah, sure. So I'm wearing one of my hip young youth pastor shirts today. Um, so it says salty and lit on it. <laughs> <laughs> so you know salt, salt of the earth light of the world uh translated to gen z lingo salty salty and lit and, uh, and there was that version of like the lord's prayer recently too that was changed into gen z lingo Is oh, it, it was the lord's prayer right or was there something else oh it was the uh the the love passage in corinthians oh yeah that's right that's right yeah that's right. love is dank <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's the thing. That's the thing. So yeah, I'm wearing my hip young youth pastor shirt. Compliments of Sunday Cool, um, who is the company that that put it out. So salty and lit, pretty cool. Um, Yeah, and it's red to go. You know, Josh. You know too. Oh, sweet. Well, here's the thing. You know that like when you going forward as you get older. You're going to wear shirts like that, thinking it connects you with the young people, but they're just going to be like, why does this guy think that like he can just wear a cool shirt and then immediately he's one of us youngins? So just <laughs> be, be aware rolling. of that. It's, yeah, roll in their eyes. Coming. Well, I think yeah. the good news for me, Marty, is um, since I look like I'm 16, even though I'm 25, 
I'll be able to wear yeah, the cool true. shirts because people will still think I'm actually young. That's true. So sweet. All right, man. Well, let's uh, let's make a transition here. Let's uh, introduce our guest. We don't want to leave him hanging too long. Um, so with us today is Dr. Curtis Holtzen. So how are you doing today? I'm doing hey. good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for uh, for being with us, for, for uh, giving up uh, some time to chat with uh, two dudes you've never met before sure. or heard of. <laughs> by, by the way, I, uh, I have to tell you, I appreciate you changing the name of the podcast before you interview me. If you had changed it after, maybe you think to yourself, <laughs> after talking to this guy, theology does suck. You need to change the name. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad that's out of the way. It's done. It's good to go. Right on. Perfect. <laughs> I'm glad it, it, it fits and that you approve. Uh, before we jump in, though, real quick, how what would be the best way um, to call you? Do you want to go by Curtis, Kurt, Dr. Holzen, Mr. Dr. Professor Holzen? Like, what's the... Uh, let's go with Curtis. Curtis, all right. Although my students always just called me Holzen, never Holtzen. doctor, oh, professor, got it. anything like that. But, okay. but you're not my student, so just call me Curtis. Sweet. All right, we'll go with Curtis. Sounds good. Um, well, Curtis, before we hear a little bit about you... Um, we have a question that we ask all of our listeners, uh, or all of our, <laughs> rather, all of our guests uh, when they come on the show. Um, and it's a really important question. Uh, it means a lot to both Marty and I. And often we tell people, depending on how you answer the question, will determine if we continue the interview or not. So okay. I, hope you're, I hope you're ready. Um, and here, actually, Marty, would you like to ask him the question? I never let you yeah, do sure. it. That's okay. I, I always just figured it's yours, but it, I'll ask. I'll, it's okay. Uh, so, Curtis, who is your favorite hockey team? Uh, well, <laughs> since I – since <laughs> wow, that's like asking uh, what's my favorite eggplant dish. <laughs> uh, Let's go. Let's go with the uh, the Anaheim Ducks since okay. I lived in uh, Orange County for thirty five years. Sweet. You see, a lot of people always think that question is going to be like a really intense question, and then for people that like actually care a little bit about hockey, they're like, "Oh, okay, well that's easy." But for other people, that's like the interview question. Can you tell us your three best strengths? And <laughs> also, can you tell us your three weaknesses? And they have to figure out like, do I say, "Well, my strengths are also my weaknesses," or do they have to come up with like six separate things all that's on the right. fly? That's right. I, I did have a half second of panic where I thought. I don't know any hockey teams, but I, I, I got a few. There we go. So. Anaheim, is that's a solid choice. That's fine. I don't think that, that – they're definitely not a rival of my team, the Washington Capitals. Um, and I don't think – they don't really have a history with Chicago, do they, Marty? No. Sweet. Not, at least, not that, but I'm aware of. I do know that they used to be the Mighty Ducks. Yeah, uh, the Mighty yes. Ducks of Anaheim. I remember being yeah. a kid and thinking, like, that's super cool, the Mighty Ducks, because it was like a, a movie, and I was like, it must mm -hmm. be because of the movie. So I, I remember thinking that was really cool as a kid. Sweet. But, and their stadium <laughs> used to be called the uh, Arrowhead Pond. Oh, but, sweet. Uh, but it's been sold. Yeah, bummer. Mm. I still so. think the coolest name – we'll move on from this because I know you're not here to talk about hockey. But the coolest <laughs> <laughs> the coolest rink name I still think belongs to San Jose because they call their – which San Jose Sharks, and they call mm -hmm. their stadium the Shark Tank, uh, which is no. just – that just is brilliant. So good for go. them. <laughs> 
That sweet. that should be my pick because I live up in uh, Northern California now. But oh, sweet. I'll go, okay, I'll go with my roots. Yeah, the ducks are cool. Right on. All right, man. Well, since um, I mean, you made help make a nice little transition there. Can you just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself for our listeners who um, maybe don't have any connection to you? Just tell us like who you are, what you do, maybe a little bit of your your faith background, your journey, those kind of things. Uh, sure. Uh, I've lived in California my whole life. Um, I uh, am currently a professor of philosophy and theology at Hope International University in Fullerton, California. Uh, my wife and I lived uh, in in Orange County, where the, the school is, uh, and we both worked for the college. She was the human resources director, and I was a professor uh, for 20 years, and then my wife got headhunted for a... Uh, a school up here in the Monterey Bay. So we packed up, uh, decided to pursue her career a bit. She supported me for years and years and years and thought it was time um, mm. I support her. And so we moved up here, and my school was gracious enough to keep me on uh, part-time. And I do mostly online education now. I'll go down there uh, for a couple two-week intensive classes now and then. Uh, so, uh, I have worked with the school for 22 years and hopefully I'll keep doing that. Um, so my faith background, I came to Christ when I was 14, uh, probably I was around 2021 when I realized what that meant. Hmm. Uh, one of those things where I filled out a card, I was, I, I started attending a church. My, my parents, uh, weren't people of faith. Um, and there was a church down the road that was a cool place to hang out, um, got me away from the house and, uh, uh, I attended for a while and they had a card that said, you checked off desire to be a member of the church. And so I checked that and they said, well, to do that, you got to be baptized. And I was like, mm, oh, okay. So I was baptized and, uh, again, didn't really start understanding what all that meant until I was, uh, in college. Um, the, uh, the school background and my church background is part of what's called the Stone Campbell movement or the restoration movement. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. Yeah, not too uh, familiar. So the, uh, it's one of those, uh, it was a unity movement that quickly broke into three factions. So, uh, typical, <laughs> right. uh, but, uh, and so there's three branches, three main branches. There's the Disciples of Christ, which would be the more progressive end. Okay. There's the Churches of Christ, uh, which would be the, the more traditional. And then kind of in between the two is what's called the Independent Christian Church. And uh, that's uh, my church background. That's who I'm ordained through. Uh, that's the background of Hope International. Um, uh so yeah, so that's that's uh, that background. Uh, as I said, I'm I'm living up here in the Monterey Bay in a city called Marina, which is ironic because we don't have a marina. But <laughs> I I don't know who names towns and why. Um, and I'm currently attending a uh, Evangelical Covenant Church, which I, I I like very much. So I'll I'll shout out to uh, All Things New. That's the name of the church in Monterey. Nice. That's a really cool name. I like it. Yeah. 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 That's, huh. that reminds me like, um, 
<clears throat> Marty and I used to work at this church where like uh, they did something very similar to what you know what you're talking about. Like they had this uh, connection card, and then like whenever people would come, they had this question that was like, uh, "How is it phrased, Marty?" It was something like, "I would like more information about becoming a follower of Christ." And so yeah. like if someone checked that box, then they would count that as a conversion and then put that in their numbers and then like, whoa, look. Um, but Marty and I quickly realized the same people would check that box every week. <laughs> or like a first-time guest would check it and then never come back. So it's just, I don't know. Anyway. Or um, legitimately would check it because they just wanted more information. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but they would never receive more information. They would just oh. be told, oh, now you are. <laughs> and it's That's like, right. Oh. This, so I guess I don't have to do anything. Yeah, good. That's good, right. Good. And then our, our <laughs> friend. Then all those who wish to follow me, check the box. And... <laughs> <laughs> right. 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 Our friend Matthew Bates had some things to say about that. Marty, that's an, that was another fun episode for our listeners. If you're new to the show, go back and check that out. Gospel Allegiance with Matthew Bates was a super fun conversation. Uh, but we're not here to talk about Matthew Bates today. Uh, we're here because, Curtis, you recently... Uh, put out a book, a new book uh, out by IVP Academic, and it's called The God Who Trusts, A Relational Theology of Divine Faith, Hope, and Love. That is correct. Sweet. And so before we jump into the book, um, just for people who, who maybe don't know, can you just tell us a little bit about um, wh- like what is open and relational theology? Good. So open and relational theology, very very broad category, and it's it's um, a category that includes uh, everything from uh, process theology to openness theology to uh, some tenets in um, some of the uh, feminist theology and, and, and these various uh, disciplines. The main idea behind this is that God is relational, that, that God is not static, that God... Um, actually responds to people, mm. uh, that God relates back and forth, that, that there are things that we can say and do and believe uh, that will change how God uh, acts and responds. And so uh, the open aspect of, of open theism is more a statement not about God, but about the future. Mm. And so okay. it's the idea that, that the future is not closed, that it's not uh, determined, either by divine will or just by uh, truth statements, uh, but that it's open to, uh, to real change. So the idea of open, relation, uh, open and relational theology is trying to uh, make sense of this idea of God being responsive, God being relational, God being genuinely loving, and at the same time, humans being significantly free. Okay. So it's almost like in a in a in some sense, uh, people tend to have this this thought or idea that God um, somehow can see time almost like uh, like a movie strip, right? Where God can zoom out, go anywhere back into the past, or zoom forward into the future, zoom in and and have total idea and understanding of what's happening. Um, whereas in open open uh, theism. Uh, there is no future for God to know yet. Is that kind of a, a fair way to say it? Right. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. Um, or at least 
maybe I'd restate it like this. There is a future, and the future is made up of some conditionals. Okay. And the future is made up of some actualities. And so some things are actual. There are some things that just won't change. And God knows those. But the things that are conditional, the things that are open-ended, God can know them only as open-ended. Okay. So it, it's, it's not that God is totally flying blind. Uh, it's that God knows that this might happen or this might happen. But what will happen, that hasn't been determined yet. Okay. So it's not, because I think sometimes uh, people get this like misconception that uh, open theism is somehow saying that God is, is like dumber <laughs> or something or, or, or not as intelligent, doesn't know as much, where really it's more so a statement not about God, but about the future and more a statement about time and how time works. Is that right? Okay. Right. Yeah. A lot of the claims are that God is ignorant. Okay. And so, um, that God doesn't know what God should know. Okay. But, but I argue and others have argued that God knows everything there is to know. Right. There are just some things that are not knowable. <laughs> right. Some, some things that aren't knowable are, are false statements. Okay. You know, God doesn't know what is false. He knows statements that are false, but to know something is to know it's true. Right. And so, you know, you're wearing this cool, salty, and lit shirt. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, God does not know that you're wearing a blue shirt right now because that's not true. Right on. But there are, there are some people who say God knows everything and that's just an odd statement because you got to start breaking it down. Okay. You say God knows everything. I, I think you're trying to say God knows everything that's true. Okay. And open theists agree with that. We just disagree with other people regarding what, what statements are currently true and which are currently potentially true. Okay. Awesome. So can I can I ask then just just to just to clarify along it as as I'm kind of going through this process of learning a lot of these things too. Mm -hmm. um, where do so on those open ended things? Um, where does does an open theist fall along the lines of what determines those things? So is it you know if there's an open ended thing in the future, is that something that God determines? on a choice or based on free will or however that falls together i'm not sure if that makes sense uh i'm sorry you cut out you froze so oh, it, i did it, it, okay. it definitely made no sense because <laughs> <laughs> so so in, in like one of those open-ended things um where does the determination for one of those open-ended things come from does god then determine at a specific time like as one of those open-ended things comes in the point of time, does God then make the determination of that, or is that a free will determination that we make if it's a choice we're we're supposed to make one way or the other? Or good, how good. does that fall? Um, so th this answer is going to uh, change depending on who you ask. Yeah. Um, there's there are some open theists who think God has unilaterally determined some things in the future, and those things that God has determined they will happen. Others have said that along the process, along the timeline, God and humans make the determination of certain things that will happen. So, um, you know, I'm on my, I, I, I always use food illustrations. Uh, <laughs> Food's I, good. <laughs> I, I, yes, I'm, I'm a big fan of food. <laughs> um, and so, uh, and coffee. And so I'm on my, my third or fourth cup of coffee right now. 
Cheers. Uh, there we go. It's uh, it's still open ended whether I will have another cup of coffee after this, but if I choose to do it, and I have that cup of coffee, I, I've determined that. So, um, you know, maybe maybe God knows at this moment that uh, there's a a seventy five percent chance that it's likely I'll have another cup of coffee. That may be the case, um, but as far as determining, knowing it. Actually, that's that's still open-ended right now. Um, and then as far as God determining God's own activities, I think that's done in response to what what we humans do. So there may be some things that, that we do that God says, ah, now I must do this in response, or I'll react this way. So so I I, I think I think there are certain things that maybe God has predetermined will happen. Um, exactly how they'll happen. I, I, I don't know. Um, but I think much, most of the future is determined by us in concert with God and one another. Sure. Makes sense. Yeah. Awesome. Great. And so then, um, you mentioned too, uh, this idea of process theology. So, um, do you fall into that, that, uh, category of process theology? No, I, okay. uh, I see them as uh, uh, cousins, stepbrothers. Okay. Okay. I don't, I don't okay. know how I would see it. Uh, very much appreciate uh, the work that, that process thinkers do. Um, I've just not quite bought into the metaphysics yet. Sure. And I say yet because it's, it's possible maybe I will, uh, though it's unlikely given how much study I've done and, and I've, I've not, um, I've not found it persuasive. Okay. Uh, maybe it's cause I don't understand it. Uh, and there's much of it I don't understand. So metaphysics is a uh, but crazy I'm, thing. I'm not <laughs> cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 uh, the process thinkers really know their, their metaphysics, no doubt. But, um, yeah, it just, it just hasn't, um, grasped me like, like, some other theologies. Sure. Okay. Awesome. Uh, well, thank you for that, and thank you too for the the explanation of open and relational theology. I know we've had um, some open and relational guests on before. For example, like Tom Ord, uh, who endorsed mm-hmm. your book, but we never really uh, gave our listeners like, "Hey, here's what open and relational theology is." So, thank you very much yeah. for that. Yeah, and um, I would encourage if your listeners are, are interested, there's. Lots of books out there, and some other people are going to have some other explanations, and some will be better than mine or different than mine. And so there's a there's a variety of, of approaches uh, in the in the camp. Sweet, awesome. Well, so um, with that in mind, your your book, The God Who Trusts. Um, a question we always like to to ask is kind of to get at the the why before we get at the what. So like. Why, why did you write this book? Maybe who is it for? Sure. You know, initially, as I was thinking about, um, again, open theology there, a key book in this, uh, in this theology is John Sanders, uh, the God who risks. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I read his book a couple times and, and found it, uh, very persuasive and very good. But it was funny that every time he, he talked about God risking, it, there was something that just seemed like he, he was 
he was taking one step too few. It was like, what's this idea of risking? What is God risking? What's the risking for? And it, it kind of hit me one day that, that what God is risking is putting God's trust in us, is God mm. having faith in us. Uh, and so I, when I met John, the first time I met John about, I don't know, 15 years ago, I asked him, I said, why don't you ever say that God has faith? And his answer was very honest. He goes, it just never occurred to me. Hmm. And so I started thinking about that more and more. And uh, I did some of my grad studies on it. And I thought there's, there's something uh, attractive about this idea of a God who doesn't just risk. And again, I, I, John did uh, the legwork for me. I'm, I'm standing on his shoulders when it comes to this book. But I just think there's something really attractive about the idea of God trusting us, that if we're really going to talk about God being relational and God being loving, what are some of these aspects of love? And I started thinking about my marriage. I started thinking about uh, being a parent. I started thinking about my friendships. And I thought all of these relationships require some sort of trust in one another, some sort of faith in one another. And it was not so much... um, well, let me go back. It, it was because of uh, the different types of love that I had for these different people that required uh, this exploration of trust. And so I thought, wow, if God genuinely loves me the way I think God does, it seems to me I should explore this idea that God has faith in me. And so that was, that was kind of the beginnings of it. I've had this idea mowing around in my head before I ever knew of open theism. I, I kind of addressed this. Uh, in the acknowledgments of all of all places, people don't read <laughs> acknowledgments uh, unless they think their name's going to be in there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was disappointed to see my my name was not in there. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, God had not determined that uh, oh, bummer. this podcast would happen. So uh, blame God. <laughs> all right, uh, <laughs> but I uh. but I've kind of mulled around this idea for for quite a while, and so. Uh, it, it developed into some thinking and, a, and eventually a book. Nice. And it seems, um, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, and, and you did a, a whole chapter on this, and I, I want to dive into this idea, but it seems like uh, open and relational theology and then your book and this idea of, of a God who, who trusts or has faith in us um, all stems out of the, the core uh, principle or the core conviction that God is love, that God loves. And yeah, so, I think so. Yeah, so can you, I mean, just, um, I, I know it might sound like a, a simple question, but I think it's it's much deeper than people uh, give it credit for. But when we say that God loves, uh, what does that mean? Uh, so I, I think there's a, well, how I break it down is I, I think about the, the motive, means, and ends. And so when we talk about God loving, or any of us loving for, for that matter, I think there's a motive behind it. Uh, the idea of, of, of God loving means that God is desirous. I think God longs uh, to have something. You know, those things that we love, we want them. We, we either want to possess them or have them uh, uh, around us, You know, whether it's a love of ice cream, whether it's a love of uh, your children, whether it's a, a love of a friend. It, you just want those things. And so... There's that desirous aspect. Then there's also the 
uh, the active aspect of it. The when we love people, we want to do what's best for them. We want to do what's good for them. So uh, if I truly love my wife, I will do things that are in her best interest. Um, I'll be kind to her. I will uh, help her with certain things. If you love your friends, uh, you'll be encouraging of them. You'll spend time with them. Uh, and then there's the end result. And I think the end result, especially when it comes to uh, relational love, is the relationship itself. And so there's, there's something kind of grander about uh, my love for my wife is, is more than just me doing nice things for her. It's the relationship itself, and that's the end. It's this kind of communion, fellowship, uh, uh, partnership that I, that I have with her that's unique. Uh, but it's also, you know, I have these unique friendships as well. And so uh, I really see love as building towards and fostering and developing this relationship. And that relationship then uh, can only be healthy if, if, each, if each of the people involved are encouraging one another and they desire one another. So I, I really think I, I have a hard time breaking down certain words certain ideas into these kind of, you know, one sentence sort of things. And so I, I really see love as uh, multifaceted. Yeah. And so I, I, I think that's what, what it is. It, in its deepest sense, love uh, is, a, is a communion fellowship between people in which they are encouraging and building up one another and looking after their best interests for the relationship itself. I don't, I don't see relationship as a means to an end. I see it mm -hmm. as the end. Mm. Yeah, that and you did a, a really great job too of of breaking down um the idea of of love um in that chapter that you did, you know, God loves. Uh, it was actually one of my favorite uh chapters of the book um because I just thought it was so beautiful. Um and I think it lays, you know, such a solid foundation. And one thing um that I found was really interesting is is was the idea that like um part of the thing that God risks in loving is us or his creation uh, having the legitimate ability and choice not to love him back. And like how God's mm -hmm. love is perfected in the relationship of his creation uh, loving him back. And that uh, you right. kind of talk about how like um, God desires, you said that, you know, God is lover not only desires that we return God's love because God, because God enjoys our love, but also because it is in our best interest to be lovers of God. Um, wow. I just thought that was, that was really good and um, just super helpful uh, within the realm of, of relationship with God. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I've had some, some people, some, some friends and uh, who will comment about the, the egotistical, egotistical, <laughs> um, uh, aspect of God requiring worship of God, mm -hmm. that obviously here's this God who's so needy, who's so self-absorbed, needs us to, to worship God. Uh, but I think worship at its, at its most basic is recognizing the true beauty that God is. And so it's, it's in our best interest to be in relationship with God. Um, not only because there's, again, uh, not only because it's good for us, I think it's I think it's just creating good in general. Uh, 
desiring to be in relationship with God, maybe we'll do that at first because we think there's something in it for us. We escape punishment or we get these really cool electric harps someday and you know, <laughs> all these, these sort of... Hang out uh, in some sweet clouds, too. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Joining the rock and roll band or whatever. But hopefully as we mature, we get past that idea and we see that there's there's something good in loving God, not not just in what we get, but that it's a good in and of itself. Yeah. This this goes back to why uh, some of my ponderings about why God would even create. Um, and I'm I'm building off the idea that God uh, that there wasn't a creation and God brings this creation into existence. Um, and I I think it may be in part not that we can read the mind of God. Uh, but it may have been because there are just certain goods that God could not bring about without a creation. Mm, okay. And, and I, I think the good of, of mutual love and fellowship and communion is, is one of those. And so yeah, perhaps there's a reason why God did this. Yeah, I think you used a, if I remember correctly, uh, you used a helpful metaphor too, um, involving like, uh, like children where you said like, it's, it's good. If it's, if you, you know, you think, uh, in a situation, um, your child at school, uh, might do something loving for somebody, like somebody is sitting by themselves and your child, you think like, oh yeah, my child would do this, this, uh, loving thing and go sit and be friends with them. Um, but there's something better. There's something, uh, greater, or there's more love involved when that child actually then does that thing. Like the love is then mm-hmm. realized or, or manifested perhaps. Hopefully I'm not butchering that metaphor, but I thought that was really helpful. No, no, that, that works. Yeah, absolutely. There's, uh, you know, desiring to do good is good. Doing good is good. <laughs> and then even better is when the good has good results. Mm. Um, you know, that's the, that's the, the ultimate that's the telos we're working for and so um yeah i i i I i think this idea of of uh relationship with god is a good that transcends the relationship itself it's it's hard to explain sometimes but sure uh but it's not just that we do that because we somehow reap benefits it's that there's a good that we participate in bringing about that is kind of bigger than us. You know, sometimes you, sometimes I, again, I'll go back to the metaphor of my wife and I, sometimes I think about, you know, the relationship in some ways is bigger than just the two of us involved. When you'll have people talk about, well, you need to stay together for the kids or something like that. But, but there's something true about that because it it means that the relationship is bigger than just the two persons involved. Mm. Um, And uh, I, I think that's in a weird way, kind of true about our relationship with God, that, that the relationship itself is, is more than just two beings. It's, it's, it's something grander that we get to participate in, mm. you know, maybe like artwork. You yeah. Know, you, I, I'm not an artist. Uh, I'm not a musician, but, but creating these amazing pieces of, of art, there, there's the, the physical or, or the recording or something and the artist, but then there's something that kind of transcends both of those. Mm-hmm that's kind of bigger than, than both. And, and I think that's true with our relationship with God. Yeah, that's good. It, um, it reminds me too of this, this parable that I heard, uh, recently. Um, if I remember correctly, I think it has its roots in the Islamic faith. 
Um, and it go it you know it's not fully documented though. But basically, there's this lady, and she would go around, and she always carried with her fire and water. Uh, to carry fire, she always carried a torch, and she carried a bucket full of water. Um, and when people asked her, you know, what are, what are these things for? Why are you doing this? She said, well, the fire is to um, burn up heaven, and the water is to extinguish hell. And they would ask her, like, well, why would you want to do that? Like, heaven's a great thing. Why would you want to burn it up? And, and hell's uh, also, I guess, a good thing, depending on who you talk to. Why'd you, why would you want to extinguish it? And she was like, because then it, it shows me that I'm doing good for good. That the mm. reason to do good is because it is good, not for the, 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 the promise of heaven or the fear of hell, but more so because doing good is good. So right. I, I feel like right. that, that kind of ties in. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Uh, yeah, a little Kantian philosophy there. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so uh, I, I, I'm I'm not opposed to benefits. Uh, I I do think uh, when we love someone, uh, it's it's not bad to to want something good to come from that. Sure. Uh, to be in relationship with someone, uh, you want something good to come from that. Uh, I just think that the good that comes from that. Is is bigger than uh, than the pleasure that the two that the two or or the many in the relationship experience. There's there's just something that's kind of bigger than that. Sure. But now and, and now we're getting into things that are really kind of outside of <laughs> of, of what I articulated in the yeah, book. But, yeah. But kind of hinted towards. Sure. Yeah. Well, let's. Um, so I think saying that that God loves. Um, People tend to be okay with that, you know, across the board. Like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. God is love, whatever. Um, but I think where it starts diving more into this idea of um, open and relational theology is where you start talking it about uh, how God believes. Like God right. – uh, so can you uh, kind of talk about that a little bit? What do you mean that, that God believes? Sure. So I started thinking about what, what does it mean – to know something. And the traditional aspect of this is that to know something, uh, you got to have true, justified, or warranted beliefs. And so for you to know something, what you know, you have to believe it. It has to be true. And you have to have a reason, a good reason for believing it. Um, so I started thinking about, about God's knowledge and whether uh, this this tripartite would would apply to God, and uh, different open theists have have addressed this in some different ways. But but if I was going to talk about the idea of of faith and faith being uh, belief, trust, hope, love, uh, I had to address this idea. Um, so what is it that God believes about the future if the future can't be known? Mm. Okay, and and this was a weird question for me because I, I hadn't seen any other open theists who who really addressed it. They they may have, I just I hadn't seen it. But if God only has true beliefs, if God can only believe something that's true, and the future is not true, or parts of the future don't have aren't true, what does God believe about those? And so I had to kind of delve into that and and. Uh, so there's these these approaches to to statements that philosophers have have dealt with for 2,500 years, where you talk about um, bivalence, the idea that that truth, that all statements are true or false. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and I happen to fall into 
what's called non-bivalence, which uh, I don't think all statements are true or false. I think some, uh, such as I will have uh, another cup of coffee today, I don't think that statement is true or false. Um, but so some have dealt and, and delved into how they how they deal with this idea uh, and how it relates to God. And so I, I touched on the idea that that some open theists have said that um, all future statements or all statements about the future are true or false. There are just some that God doesn't know. Uh, I found that a little odd, but some have gone into that. Uh, some have argued that statements about the future can change. Uh which is a fun one, but it wasn't one that I, I sided with. Uh, uh, you have this uh, philosopher, P.T. Geech, who had this idea that something can be true and the truth of the statement can change. And so uh, his example is uh, the plane is going to crash. That is true. But then the pilot does something and averts the, the crash. Uh, the truth of the statement, the plane is going to crash, was changed. Mm. Um, some people don't like that idea that truth, truth values can change back and forth. Um, then you have some like, uh, Greg Boyd, who, uh, argues that, um, statements about the future will and will not are, are both of those are false. And what's true is might and might not. Mm. Okay. Uh, and he is so into this, he got it tattooed on his back. Really? Yeah, he's 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 got this hexagon of of uh, of truth. I, I forget the exact uh, statement of it, but he posted recently on on Twitter and showed his uh, his tattoo. <laughs> I did not that know is this. Commitment, uh, <laughs> um, uh, but it wasn't the the avenue I took. I I feel better about the idea of non bivalence, which at least I have Aristotle on my side. There you go. Uh, um, He's kind of important. Yeah, a little name drop there. Me and uh, <laughs> me and Eric. Uh, uh, but the uh, the idea behind that is that uh, statements about uh, future conditionals are neither true nor false. Um, and so I will have a cup of I will have a cup of coffee at four o'clock today. That's a statement that's neither true nor false. Um, but it it will become true or false. One of them. Mm-hmm. when the time passes. So I got to really thinking about, okay, well, what does God think about certain future statements? And so I, I think what the case is, and uh, I was helped a lot uh, working through this, uh, a friend of mine who teaches philosophy at uh, Loyola Marymount, uh, Daniel Speak, um, though don't blame him for my mistakes. <laughs> but he, he was someone who really pushed me on some of my ideas. But I think the idea that, that God believes uh, percentages of truth. And so uh, God only n- believes what is true. And so um, it may be true that it's it's uh, 10% likely that I'll have a cup of coffee at 4 o'clock today. And God believes that. Okay. But maybe as the day goes on, so I'll feel tired. Uh, some other things will will happen. I'll realize I'm I'm going to the movies tonight. Oh, I need a cup of coffee late in the day, and so the the percentage of that of me doing that, the likelihood of that may change, and so uh, God's belief about that will change, based on what is true about that statement. Okay. 
So I think, think God's knowledge is dynamic in that uh, I don't think God ever believes anything wrongly. I don't think God has any wrong beliefs. But there, but there are some things that God believes, and God believes the percentages, and those percentages can change. Okay. So if it turns out that God believes that, um, that I'll have that cup of coffee— uh, and I don't. It's not that, you know, I can stick my finger in God's face and go, ha you were wrong. <laughs> uh, it was that God knew it was such and such likely. And even if it's 90% likely, that there's still a 10% chance. And again, I'm making up these numbers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but there's still a 10% chance I, I don't do it. Uh, and so while that can be surprising, it doesn't mean that God believed anything falsely. Sure. So, so that, you, that's how I address it. Yeah. So if you were to play a chess game against God, you could you could still never beat him. <laughs> that is uh, that is the, true. I you know I don't know. Could God somehow make it fair? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know. I mean, we have a history of God cheating and things like that. You know, remember he popped uh, Jacob's uh, hip, right? To to win the. So I don't know. Maybe maybe God wins by cheating. You know? <laughs> <laughs> there we go. There's the bold <laughs> statement of the day for you, Barty. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Can I can I ask a, a sort of a follow up question? And it's not necessarily meant to be a challenge, mostly just because I'm not a scholar on this in any way. Um, but just out of curiosity, uh, so you, you had mentioned that you you had thought about this sort of in a philosophical way, and you had had others that had helped you kind of think through these kinds of things on a mm-hmm. philosophical bent. Um, where if from anywhere, where where scripturally do these things kind of begin to be coincided or at least supported or and not that I, I not, not, again not that I'm challenging it necessarily but just kind of curious to where see how that all comes together. Right. These are these are good questions. Um, so you you have some open theists who make I think very strong biblical cases. Mm. Um, I also think you have some some determinists some. Uh, Calvin forward thinkers who make some strong biblical cases. I think scripture, I have a hard time seeing scripture definitive on either one of these. (laughs) That's kind of the position Boyd takes too, right? Uh, I don't know. Okay. Okay. Sorry. That was a tangent. Cool. That's all right. Um, So I've had some people who challenge me saying, well, you know, your, your ideas aren't biblical. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) <laughs> uh, uh, sure. but they're not anti-biblical either. Yeah, uh, sure. So I tried to make sense of it. I uh, tried to do my, my best to make sense of it. So as far as uh, Scripture being thoroughly uh, open or being thoroughly deterministic, uh, I, I think it's more open than not, uh, especially uh, in the Old Testament where you get some statements where God seems to change God's mind or relent or repent or uh, make some statements, uh, has conditional sorts of prophecies. If you do this, this will happen. And if you don't do this, this will happen. And so Mm -hmm. it seems open-ended. My example that I use in the book for my belief is um, the story of, um, and I'm terrible with my Bible addresses, uh, Exodus uh, I think it's 32, um, where Moses has just come down from the mountain and uh, everyone's uh, bowing down to the golden calf. Yeah. And, and God's like, 
that's it. I'm going to wipe them out, and I'm going to start with a new nation with you, Moses. And Moses goes, uh, hey, God, pump the brakes on this for a minute. Uh, let's think about that. And God's like, nope, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to destroy him and start over with you. And it turns out that doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so here's this sort of thing where you, where you, you got to start wrestling with the text uh, regarding, okay, what, what's it trying to say about God in this, in this case? That God lied, that God misled, that God truly believed that was going to happen and that God was wrong about God's own intentions. Um, and so it's not, a, it's not a, an easy passage regardless. Mm-hmm. Uh, I look at the passage as God conveying, this is likely what's going to happen. These are my intentions. Uh, and then through conversation with Moses, uh, maybe God even trusts Moses's counsel here. Uh, we have another place where God says that uh, God trusts Moses. Um, uh, God changes God's mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I kind of tackled the idea that God probably knew it was, again, I'm making up numbers here, 75% likely that this was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but over time in conversation, God ends up changing God's mind and and... Uh, not that God was wrong, but that it was just as true that there was a 25% chance it wouldn't happen. Mm. And so it just turns out that in an open future, it turns out that the, the 25% became uh, actual, not the 75%, something like that. Yeah. Sure. Uh, does, does that help, Marty? Yeah, for sure. Because I, I was just kind of thinking through things as you were talking and um, there's this, I'm sure you, both of you are familiar uh, with a, a book or a Bible-ish thing called the story where they've taken the Bible and they put it into chronological order. Yeah. I think it's Randy Frazee and there's one other, there's one other bigger name too. I can't remember yeah, off the top of my look. head. Um, but essentially the idea is, is that all of these people come along throughout the old Testament and they're supposed to be the one that everyone puts their hope in, but then it winds up not being that way. And it all leads to Jesus. And so it's it's a way to help read the Old Testament through the lens of Christ, which I'm all in support of, of course. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but the one thing that was always interesting to me about that is, you know, is was always the question. So when Abraham comes on the scene and God uses Abraham and Abraham becomes this big part of the story that God intends to lead people through, did God think Abraham was going to be this big thing and then Abraham just screws up and then so now God has to find somebody else to use and so then then the next guy is Moses and then after that it's like well that didn't work out either right. you know and 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 so it's interesting to me how within the way that they kind of frame that that narrative of you know they they, they even say for like especially for children that like because my kids took home take home things and they said there were all these people that came along that were supposed to be the hero but then each one of them wound up falling short until Jesus came along and Jesus was finally the hero. And I remember, I don't know if it was one of my kids or if it was someone else's kid that wound up asking, well, didn't God know that all those people weren't going to be the hero? (laughs) And so why would he make such a big deal out of all these people? And, you know, and I think to some of what you're saying there, perhaps, 
perhaps Abraham had a 60% chance of being, of being the one or something like that. And it didn't happen. Um, Or perhaps, you know, maybe even David became that. And then Bathsheba shows up and that ruins everything. Um, But, and again, I I think a lot of that for me personally, I'm not sure that that, that the whole idea of the story narrative actually is the idea that you're kind of speaking of, but it, that's kind of how I'm making sense of it in my, in my mind. <laughs> right, right. I, I would be uncomfortable with the idea that God somehow thinks Abraham or Moses is going to be the savior of humanity. Yeah. Right. Uh, I, I see them uh, into uh, Jesus's uh, parable about sending out the people to make invitations, and people are turning them down, turning them down. Finally, he sends out uh, his own son mm-hmm. uh, to make the invitations. Uh, so I, I, I think that these are uh, people that, that God has used to to build up to get to the point to which uh, yeah. Jesus can come. But does that mean that uh, you know God doesn't get disappointed or frustrated or or laughs or is amused uh, <laughs> at, at sure. uh, some of the the mistakes uh, that are made along the way? Yeah. I, I think God just knows God's dealing with uh, fallible people who are, mm-hmm. you know, just make mistakes. And, and sometimes it's frustrating to God. And other times God's like, well, wow, they actually, I expected them to screw up, but this time they did a lot better than I yeah. expected. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. pleasantly surprised at, at times. I always found it interesting when, when Abraham lies to Pharaoh about his wife. You know, and I always wondered, like, what what did God think about that? Because it, you know, it's like, you know, it, it, did God look at that and be like, "What are you doing, you idiot?" Like, <laughs> like what? Yep, yep. I, I, I'm, I'm with doing, you on that. Intended to happen in that moment. I, yeah. yeah, right. I, I think God has a sense of humor. Oh, I, for sure, I really yeah. do. Which, by the way, lends itself to the idea of an open future. Yeah, because humor is is based on the the unexpected and the unforeseen, but. Uh, uh, maybe I'm wrong on that. I just got a new book about uh, about humor in the Bible that I'm looking forward to getting into by Steve Wilkins. But, nice. uh, uh, but we'll see. But well, I I, I want to try to like um, make try to use a, a metaphor to help with the statement that you made in your book about this stuff um, about the difference between faith and belief. Um, and then I think because we I mean we could keep. Uh, doing like the philosophical bit about like hopes and trusts. Um, but I think what might be helpful is if we can uh, move into some like, like let's take these ideas, apply them to like Christ and the atonement uh, like you did in your book. And then let's get to like, a, okay, so what? Like what, okay. how does this affect, affect me? You know what I mean? Um, sure. But I think, so you did this. It was extremely helpful for me. Um, this thing with like faith and belief and how they're different. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to try to use a metaphor and see if it works. <laughs> so okay. the other the other day, I was watching the Washington Capitals, believe it or not, and oh, they're playing they're playing the New York Islanders, and they were playing awful, um, really bad. They went into the third period down four to one. Now the Capitals are the best team in the league, uh, statistically. Uh, so haha, Marty. Um, <laughs> so I I had faith. There's only a thirty. 30- percent chance of that staying the same by the way <laughs> <laughs> I, I had i had faith that the washington capitals can make a comeback 
but perhaps I didn't necessarily believe that they would. And I think that plays into the realm of the percentage things, right? Like maybe there was a, a 20% chance that they would come back, an 80% chance that they wouldn't. I could have faith that they would, um, but maybe not believe that they would. But the good news is they did come back. They ended up winning 6-4. to four. Alex Ovechkin scored a hat trick, and it was beautiful. Um, but does that work? Does that make sense kind of with the idea? Sure, sure. So when you when you think about what it means to, to believe something um, – you you think that the that if you you said I believe that the Capitals are going to come back and win, uh, you believe that's true. Um, to to believe that means that you you act a certain way. Um, you'd be surprised to find out it was it was false. Um, you uh, you would maybe uh, build other beliefs upon that one. You know, maybe you'd start calling people saying, hey, Capitals are going to win. I believe it. Something <laughs> like that. Um, but there are certain things that that we don't quite believe because we, we can't quite muster up those those sort of things. Um, but you could still have faith in that uh, you're hopeful about it. You think okay. it's a good thing. You're in favor of it. You You know it's possible. And so... Uh, many of our beliefs, most of our beliefs, are beyond our willingness. We we can't will to believe certain things. The the fancy term is doxastic involuntarism. Okay. Um, you can't just at will believe certain things are true. Um, you know, Marty, you can't just by will believe that you are in uh, Seattle right now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, as hard as you might try. You just can't will yourself to believe that. Um, but the thing that's interesting about faith is, is uh, I think faith has a little more willful aspect of it. Mm. Um, at the same time, and I think this is more important, um, there are certain things that we can believe that aren't good. Uh, the example I use in the book, I, I think I use this, uh, I may believe that America is going to be plagued by racism for the next 20 years. I may believe that, but I don't have faith that America is going to be plagued by racism. That would be weird. Mm, uh, okay. So when we have faith, we're in favor of something. So, so all this, all this to say, um, trying to, trying to equate faith to belief is problematic. Uh, because there are times in which we can have faith in something even though we don't have belief in its fullest sense. And I still think it's faith. Mm -hmm. um, I still think that we're in favor of it, that we, we think it's possible, that, uh, that we desire it, even though we, don't, we can't muster up and make ourselves believe that the statement is true. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you. Uh, that's super helpful. So can yeah. we take... Um, take a turn and then how, how does, do your ideas, this idea that God loves, that he believes, uh, that he hopes, that he trusts, how does all of this kind of, uh, work into the idea of Christ and the atonement? Cause uh, you talk a lot about this idea of reconciliation within the atonement. And I found that, uh, personally, I found it beautiful and, and very helpful. So can like, what is, what are the ramifications, I guess? of this way of thinking when it comes to the atonement and, and the work of Christ. 
Well, from a relational aspect, um, something that's important is, is God doesn't uh, preordain who is saved and who is damned. Hmm. Uh, that may be uh, history of open theism. That, that is probably uh, where the idea really, really gained its momentum. Uh, you had some, some early thinkers, especially Clark Pinnock, who um, was a Calvinist, or had those leanings and then kind of made his way into Arminianism. Uh, he, he couldn't quite stomach the idea that God determined who was saved and, and who wasn't. And this was done uh, pre-time or, or long before any of us existed. It was already determined. Uh, that didn't seem fair and loving. And then uh, the idea of, well, but God always knew what was going to happen. God didn't determine it, but God always knew. Mm-hmm. Well, if God knows it, it must be true. And if it's true, God can't do anything about it. <laughs> uh, you run into a weird paradox when you talk about the omniscience of God and uh, omnipotence of God, uh, where the two kind of battle against each other. If God knows it's tr- if God knows some future statement is true, then God doesn't have the power to change it. Because if God changed it, that would mean that, that God's power thwarted God's knowledge. Yeah. It, so either God knows it's true and can't do anything about it, or God doesn't know it's true but has the power to change it. So you, you run into these sort of things. Well, if salvation is ideally synergistic, that is that we have a say-so in it, um, that it's not all... Uh, all God's doing, and that God desires our salvation, that God desires us to be in relationship with God, that God desires us to be in fellowship with God, to submit ourselves to God, uh, then there's an aspect there that um, that God is, is, is trusting and hoping um, that, that the work of Christ uh, will be effective. Um, and we can get into all sorts of eschatological salvation sort of ideas and, and, and how far God's hope extends. Maybe it extends long after this life. Uh, I'm open, certainly open to those possibilities. Sure. Um, but, I, but I think that if, if salvation is in some in our court, then God uh, must have some faith that we're going to respond positively. Because that's what God desires. This is that God desires the salvation of all people. Mm-hmm. But if if that's in our hands to some extent, um, then God has to trust that that what God's done will be effective. Yeah. So I and I guess too by, and I mean correct me if I'm wrong, but what you mean by like salvation, like somehow we have a role in it. Because um, I know that could make some people uncomfortable. They'd be like, well, wait a minute. You're saying we earn our salvation, blah, blah, blah. But I don't think that's what you're saying. I think what you're saying is is God's God has done all the work for us. The, the role that we play and what, what makes the relationship mutual is that we then have to choose to respond um, to the work of Christ uh, in order, you know, is, is that is that the, the right yeah. way of saying it? Right, and this is this is the the critique of of synergists for thousands of years um, that that by saying we play a part uh, in our salvation, that somehow we're earning it. Uh, <laughs> right. 
I don't buy that. There's nothing we can do that means that God is then obligated to give us salvation. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. That somehow, you know, there's some sort of business transaction and that we've, we've met all the criteria. And so God now uh, must give it to us. I, I don't think that's the case. Um, what I, what I think it is, is that God has done all the work, uh, that God has, um, overcome, you know, th- through the death, burial and resurrection of Christ has overcome, uh, the powers of sin and death. Uh, but I also think that, that God doesn't strong arm us into relationships, Mm-hmm. That God invites us, that God woos us, that God does everything God can uh, to to invite us into that relationship. But uh, and, and how people understand grace, maybe maybe God has even supernaturally uh, sent God's grace throughout the world, proveniently ahead uh, of us to to soften our hearts, to to be receptive to what God has done. So even in that sense, God has has done the work. Um, but I, I do think that there is uh, a responsiveness that's required on our part. Okay. Um, and I don't. And I, I make. I do make this statement in the book. There's nothing we can do to earn God's love. Right. But we can't. But we can earn God's trust. Okay. Um, God's going to love us regardless. Um. But I think that there are things that we can do, and how we respond, and how we act that can affect how much God trusts us, what, what sort of hope God has in us, what beliefs God has about us. So I, I do think that that is uh, meritorious, mm-hmm. um, but, but not, the, not the love and grace. Okay. And I think, uh, too, with that, you, I thought it was interesting. You pointed out that, um, which I, I didn't thought about this before, but it makes perfect sense. When it, when it comes to forgiveness— um, with atonement, uh, you were saying that like, if there's somehow like some price that had to be paid or like something that had to be satisfied and then God would forgive, then that's not really forgiveness. Like, um, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, yeah, there, there are debates about whether, uh, atonement should be understood in more, uh, legal terms or whether they should be understood, um, so it, it, it comes down to this, uh, it, the cross and the resurrection, um, the debate about justification versus forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And some will emphasize the idea of justification. Um, and so here's this, this act of God, and God justifies us, and that uh, forgiveness is this kind of secondary sort of thing. What's most important is justification. Others will see that, no, 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 God's forgiveness is most important, justification is secondary, and uh, I don't know how to work out all those sort of things. But from a relational standpoint, I see that, that forgiveness uh, is an act born first out of love, mm-hmm. a, a desiring for the relationship to be healed. Um, I, I see justification as a, as a great metaphor uh, and so justification is about our innocence, but justification doesn't, doesn't heal a relationship. Justification mm-hmm. is a legal standing. Um, and that's an important metaphor. But for me, the better metaphor is the idea of forgiveness and that, uh, 
God doesn't forgive and then love us. God loves us and therefore forgives. Yeah. And so um, there's an important uh, 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 step here. I'm 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 losing my uh, uh, my thinking. Uh, I need that other cup of coffee to help you. Yeah, out. I, I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but yeah, it's it's not that it's not that forgiveness is then what allows God to love. It's love that allows God to forgive. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that that. Forgiveness is, is just a first step in reconciliation. Yeah. Simply being forgiven doesn't mean that the relationship is healed. Right. Uh, there, my, my family has um, uh, a lot of addiction problems uh, with siblings and parents and, and things like that. Uh, and there were times in which I'd see, you know, my mom forgive one of my siblings but that didn't mean that the relationship was fixed at that point. Uh, it meant that it was the very beginning of, of trying to heal the relationship. And so uh, God's forgiveness, it, that doesn't mean that that's, that's all that matters or it's one and done and you're forgiven, done. It's <laughs> like you're forgiven. Uh, now let's, let's repair this. Let's rebuild this. Let's, yeah. let's uh, develop a fellowship and a, and a communion and a community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've I've recently had a situation like that with my wife where um, forgiveness um, from her was needed on something that I had done, mm-hmm. um, and forgiveness came quickly, uh, but but repair did not, and renewal did not. But it wasn't well. It came quicker than I think many people would. But I, the the most important thing with that was that the repair and renewal. Uh, and revitalization of the relationship came from active involvement on both parts. But forgiveness was really something that really only came from one side. But mm-hmm. then once that forgiveness was was a part of that, the the renewal was a was a both and and it couldn't have been just one person working on that in order for that renewal to truly occur. Uh, in a way that led to revitalization and led to, you know, repairing of the relationship. I mean, there's no other way it could have happened. Right, right. Good, good. Uh, I, I argue in the book that uh, you can have uh, very, very, well, you can have relationships in which there is love, but if there's not trust, there mm-hmm. can't be intimacy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so a, a husband or a wife can truly love their spouse, but if they can't trust their spouse, there's never going to be that intimacy in the relationship. Uh, a parent can deeply love their children, but if their children is a uh, an addict, until they can trust that child, there's not going to be that 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 fellowship of a family. And the same thing with a friendship. You know, maybe you've been betrayed by a friend, and you still care very much for him or her, but until you feel like you can you can trust them again. Mm-hmm. That that friendship's not going to be whole, and so I, again, I think I think love is really the the foundation uh, of a relationship, but the the first thing built on that needs to be uh, trust and and hope in the in that relationship. Sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and I think too, um, what this uh, kind of all what this this points to, and I think. Maybe this is where some people get uncomfortable, although I I find it quite beautiful and it's kind of like a, a core tenet, so to speak, of, of 
uh, open and relational theology. Um, but it just makes sense with, with everything that you're saying is um, the idea of the impassibility of God um, doesn't make sense in this framework. That, that God can't suffer um, doesn't make any sense. I mean, I mean, it doesn't make sense to me outside of the framework either because I mean, then what happened on the cross? Like, <laughs> but um, right. yeah, so. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, there's lots of debates about omniscience and omnipotence and all sorts of things when you, when you go to, to the scriptures. But I think the one thing that scriptures are most clear is that God is passable. Yeah. Uh, um, if, if, if you're going to, to jettison the idea that, that somehow uh, God suffers or God is pained, uh, then what you have to do is you, you just have to read everything that's stated about God as pure metaphor. And there are some people who do that. Um, I just don't know why. I, I, I don't know what we learn about God if we're going to somehow erase any sort of statements about God being passable. I, yeah. I, um, but, but that's the tradition of Christianity. You know, yeah. it's that uh, we've, we've long had the, the idea that, that God is somehow immutable and part of being immutable, not unchanging means that God uh, certainly has no real emotions. Um, and in the last 50 years or so that, it's almost become orthodox to talk about God being passable. So, mm-hmm. uh, but if God has real emotions, that to me seems to say that that the future is open for God yeah. to be uh, to rejoice. You know, when when a when a sinner comes to to accept uh, forgiveness and there's rejoicing in heaven, that that seems to be a, a, a good sort of uh, passion. Uh, at the other end, there's there's disappointment and frustration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, I think, and I mean, maybe this is an, an overstatement, but based off what I can see and what I can tell, um, and from my humble opinion, um, it seems like we get so hung up worshiping the power of God rather than maybe the heart of God or trying to have relationship with God. Like people get so hung up on this, this idea of God's just pure power that when you start talking about God being loving and wanting relationship and God risking things and, and, and God, you know, believing in us or having hope or trusting all these kind of things, people somehow think that you're making God lesser. Um, when in reality, I think what it's showing is a beautiful truth that God is inherently relational and God is loving. And I think that's beautiful. And I think part of it comes from um, bad Trinitarian theology where we pit the Trinity against each other um, because mm-hmm. the Trinity has always been in relationship, you know, um, and there is no hierarchy in the Trinity and, and all this stuff. Um, but I think there's a there's another parable that um, this guy Pete Rollins uh, tells that I think gets at the heart of what I'm trying to say. Uh, basically the idea is like, imagine you just died and you are waiting to enter, uh, you know, the throne room, the throne, throne room of God, you get ushered into the throne room. Uh, but to much to your surprise, when you enter the throne room, Satan is sitting on God's seated on God's throne. 
And you're like, mm-hmm. whoa, wait a minute, what's going on here? And Satan says, you know, alas, I have vanquished your God. I vanquished Jesus to hell. Um, he is there now uh, forever. I am in charge. But don't worry. I'm still going to give you, you know, all the promises that, that Jesus made to you. Uh, you can still live here in heaven. Everything will be great. You just have to bow your knee to me. Or you can go be with your, your God, with your Jesus in hell. Uh, you decide. And I think mm. Rollins is getting at something. Uh, he's he's putting his finger on something I think is really important. I think, unfortunately, the way a lot of people think and act and behave is as if they would bow the knee to Satan because now Satan has the power, the authority, the sovereignty, whatever. Um, and I don't think that's right. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's too much good, of an, an overstatement, but what do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, we are um, uh, attracted to power. There's, there's something about it. Um, you know, whether it's in sports, whether it's military, whatever it is, we're, we're attracted to this idea. Um, but I think most of our experiences with people, uh, think about, Think about what a good pastor is. Uh, a good pastor is one who is able to share uh, power and leadership with uh, the, the the staff, uh, with the congregation, mm-hmm. um, to to lead that that community not by by power, uh, but by um, loving persuasion, uh, showing the right way. Um, I don't think any of us, when we would look at a church, I, I hope none of us would, if we just saw a pastor that ruled with an iron fist and said, you know, you do it my way or you're kicked out of this church, we wouldn't go, wow, that pastor knows how to lead. <laughs> that's, that's the sort of pastor I want, one that's going to, you know, make everyone toe the line or they're out of there, you know. Mm. Um, I don't think that that's the, the picture I don't think that's what we experience in life, and so I don't know why we would want that uh, as our picture of God. I, I think the the better picture of God's power is that God has has enough power that God's willing to give it away. Mm-hmm. That God's willing to to risk yeah uh, certain things out of love, and so God has um, has has shared power with humanity and with the church. Uh, and asked us to to partner with with God. Yeah. And uh, sometimes God's probably uh, happy at our choices, and sometimes God's disappointed. But um, so far, it seems like God's hanging in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so it's not that God is is somehow not the most powerful. Like God is still the most powerful thing, entity, being, however you want to describe God, um, that exists. But, sure. but, you know, it's, uh, yeah, the, I think that, but the relationship bit just makes sense to me. Like it's so, it's more beautiful that way in, in my opinion, at least. Um, uh, I, I agree. And I, I, I think, I think in a weird way and, uh, Christianity is not afraid of paradox. I think in a strange way, God is more powerful by giving away power. Uh, absolutely. Um, and, and I don't think that that the power that God has is this kind of like uh, overwhelming power that God can somehow 
you know, compel and, and that sort of thing. Uh, I think the, there's the, the truth that there's, there's strength in numbers. And so, um, when God gives us certain power to be something other than God, that's, that's not power that God can have and give away. I mean, God genuinely gives that power away. We are now able to do things that God does not want us to do. But when we partner with God, there's now a, a, a new strength there that wasn't, that wasn't possible before. And so that's why I think it's a, a risk, but it's a, a risk worth taking. Mm-hmm. And so by God giving away this power, God, in a sense, has, has more power with us. Mm-hmm. But, but the power, again, um, anytime power is separated from love, it becomes uh, very odd. Absolutely. Uh, at least here. And I, I don't think God's uh, love and power can ever be separated. Every, if everything God does is out of love, then any acts of power uh, and any given away power uh, are acts of love. And Absolutely. they're for the purpose of love. Absolutely. All right, great. Well, so um, just real quick, last thing I'll ask you that way, um, you know, again, to be respectful to your time. What? So why why should we care about this? Why why does this matter? What does how does this like affect our faith? If it does at all, like what what can we take away from this conversation um, that matters in in practical real life? Good, good man. I hope listeners have uh, hung in there. To this point. <laughs> yeah, uh, you may want to edit this and shove this at the front. Sure. Uh, no, you do what you do. I was kidding <laughs> that. Um, so, um, so if if we take seriously the idea that we're in relationship with God, and that we want to become mature Christians, uh, that we want to be faithful Christians. I think that that all presupposes that uh, if we want to be trustworthy, that that God has trust in us, and that God desires to trust us, and that God uh, wants us to be the sort of people that uh, that is um, imaged in Christ. If if we are to be imitators of Christ, we see that Christ was trustworthy, that Christ was faithful. So I see a, a, a couple aspects, the, the takeaway from this book. One, it's, it's the idea that, that our relationship with God is dynamic mm-hmm. and that uh, God not only us, but is working with us to make us strong. Again, we can't do anything to earn or forfeit the love of God. But I do think that what we, what we do has consequences in that God may be become frustrated with us or God may be delighted with us as we make good choices, mm. as we make poor choices. Um, I also think, and this is going to sound like psychobabble, and, and I get <laughs> that, um, and I don't mean it to be that, but, but maybe I shouldn't be afraid of this idea. I think there's something really interesting, something really beautiful about the idea that, that God's in your corner and God believes in you. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things I say in the book is I've heard so many times that God loves me. I'm kind of even numb to the statement. I'm sure. not even sure what it means anymore. But the idea that that to say God loves you and here's what it means. God believes in you. Yeah. God has faith in you. Yeah. Uh, God's in your corner. God's invested in you. Um, now, 
go prove God right. <laughs> yeah. You, do the right thing. God, God's not somehow um, uncaring because God already knows what's going to happen or God is not numb or unmoved or anything like this. I, I really think that, that when we do what is good, again, you both have children? Just Marty. I have dogs. Yeah. You have dogs. Three of them. Uh, <laughs> uh, maybe this will work a little bit with your dogs, but you know, when, when your kids do something – that that uh, you know they act independently and they they obey or they do something good, or they even do certain goods that you didn't expect. You know, you're just moved by that, and the yeah. what you think about your kids. I mean, you you always love them, but but now you think about them in a in a new way, and you're thinking, wow, they're they're becoming mature, they're growing up, they're becoming trustworthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I argue in the book that what I think mature means is trustworthy. Okay. Um, I don't know what it means to be mature and not trustworthy. I don't, I don't see how those two things can, can go sure, together. Sure. And so if God wants us to become mature Christians, I think God wants us to be trustworthy Christians. Mm. And, uh, you know, like the parable of the talents, those who have been trusted with a little and prove themselves trustworthy will be trusted with much. I think God wants to trust us with much, uh, but begins by trust, by trusting us with, with a little. So, you know, if there's this kind of sermon-esque takeaway, it's that uh, God God wants to trust you. Mm-hmm. God looks forward to that because that's the makings of a, a deep and intimate relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think it ties in so nicely, and it fits well um, with this understanding that you know God is you know trusted us with the ministry of reconciliation, and God wants to partner mm-hmm. with us. Uh, to build his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Um, and I think those are ex- extremely biblical ideas. I mean, N.T. Wright is my favorite uh, theologian and, and scholar. And so all this like relational stuff, I think part of why I like it so much is because it ties in so nicely with this idea that God is empowering us with the Holy Spirit to come and work alongside of him and, uh, mm-hmm to build his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And that, that idea doesn't make sense to me unless God somehow has trust in us, unless God somehow is believing that we can partner with him to do these things, to, to build his kingdom. Um, and yeah, and yeah, like Jesus, you know, inaugurated the kingdom of God through his life, death and, and, and resurrection and Jesus is King. And now God is calling us into partnership with him. The relational bit only makes sense. Otherwise I feel like you have to say none of that, other stuff is true. Yeah, I I agree. Uh, otherwise, we're just pawns on the chessboard being pushed around, and some of us are sacrificed, and some of us, <laughs> you know, take out uh, some knights and things like that. But, um, you know, for for those who read the book, they may be surprised at how many places in Scripture it talks about God trusting. Absolutely, um, I know and, I was surprised. Uh, sec- yeah. Um, it's those sort of things that we just gloss over and we don't stop and go, wait a minute, what does this mean? Uh, second Corinthians, I think it's five where it talks about, uh, Paul saying that, uh, we've been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Paul talks about being entrusted with the gospel to the Gentiles and Peter being entrusted with the gospel, uh, to the Jews. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of these statements about 
about God trusting that I, I'm hoping people will, will just pause for a minute and go, wait a minute, I never noticed that. Let me think about that. What does it really mean to, to trust? And, uh, and I, I do point out in the book that there is um, one place, actually two, uh, in Scripture, both in the book of Job, where it says God does not trust. <laughs> but it's interesting because it's Eliphaz, where, uh, you know, here's one of Job's comforters. And uh, we're always supposed to read what they say with a bit of suspicion. And so here's this, this one statement from, from a, a character in Scripture that says God does not trust. Uh, and it's so interesting that it comes uh, when we know the beginning of the story of Job, where God is truly trusting Job, because you have um, uh, the accuser saying, hey, does this, guy, does this guy love you for no reason at all? <laughs> right. And God, uh, in, a, in a weird sort of, uh, the book of Job is just weird. Absolutely. But, <laughs> as is much of Scripture, but I'm okay with, with weird. Uh, yeah, so here's God going, yeah, I'll put my money on, I'll put my money where my mouth is. Go ahead. I trust Job. I'm putting my money on Job. And it's weird that after that prelude, then we get, you know, this character saying God doesn't trust. And the reader goes, wait, we just know a few, just a few chapters back that God clearly trusted. So, so I'm, I'm getting off topic, but no, uh, that's good. Here's, here's what I want your, your, your listeners to, to take away. Uh, scripture seems to, to say uh, God trusts. I think th- the whole of Scripture makes more sense if we think that God has been in these uh, trusting and uh, faithful uh, relationships with these different characters throughout history, mm-hmm. and that God has now um, handed the baton off to the church, and that God trusts us to be uh, doing great things in the world with God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that absolutely. I just... I can't help but to, to agree with you more. Um, Marty, do you have any like questions or closing thoughts, anything you, you want to say? I think I think it's just uh, something, as I've been listening to you, Curtis, and as we've been talking more, and, you know, each one of the things you say, I mean, it's, it's definitely not something that, you know, even like six months ago, I would have been like, yeah, sounds great, <laughs> just in, I guess mm-hmm. in theory. But I think as you as you think about it more and as you consider more, you start to realize that um, at at worst, there are so much that we don't there, there's so much that we just don't know about God mm-hmm. uh, and his actual nature anyway. But at best, these things are things that we can learn about God. And there's so much about him that, you know, if we pay attention, but we also if we also just think about things a little bit deeper than simply reading the words on the page or hearing what the pastor has to say on Sunday. I, I think we can come to conclusions about things uh, that lead us into a deeper understanding of our relationship with God. And, and I just think that's beautiful. So good. Good. Thank you. Yeah. I'm, I'm not trying to say that scripture is unambiguous and just clearly says God trusts. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm trying to say, Given my presuppositions and and what I believe about God, this makes most sense to me. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think I think what's beautiful about that is is that if you asked somebody, I think even if you asked someone that wasn't sure they believed in God, do you want 
just just presuppose that God is real. Do you do you want God to trust you or to not trust you? Mm-hmm. I don't think there's anybody that would say <laughs> they want God to not trust them. Yeah, right. And so I, so I think all of that falls into line of saying like you know. And just just as we talked about with relationships with people, I think no one wants to be in relationship with somebody knowing full well that that person does not trust them. And right. so why why would we be willing to say we aren't sure God trusts us, but we would be willing to say, I don't want to be in a friendship with someone if they don't trust me. Um, exactly. So I, I think even if you just if you, if you, even if you just logic things down to that lowest common denominator, I think you can say that. Um, God definitely trusts, and God definitely wants to trust us with much, uh, and He 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 wants to believe that we will be. I mean, to use the to use the biblical thought process, to, that we will be the hands and feet of Jesus, mm-hmm. uh, continuing to build His kingdom on earth. So sure, sure, and, and I think even for those people who are are not trustworthy, God still desires them to be trustworthy. God still yeah. hopes. Yeah. Absolutely. That the, we didn't get into hope a whole lot, but um, I, I think God is is holding out hope for us. You know, the idea of talking about God being patient, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think that's synonymous with God being hopeful. Otherwise, yeah. you know, let's let's close the books on this now. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, there's there's so much uh, that we could have do- uh, dove into. I mean, I don't know if you'll be able to see on screen here, but if I were to rifle. Uh, through the book here, I think there might be more highlighted sections in your book than there is not highlighted. <laughs> so nice. uh, these, these, yeah, these, uh, the arguments, these ideas um, that that God loves, believes, trusts, and hopes um, are all laid out so nicely in your book with such great detail. I think it's extremely well argued. I think you consider um, pushback uh, deeply. I've, it's just great. So I would highly, highly encourage. Um, listeners to, to pick up a copy of The God Who Trusts, the Relational Theology of Divine uh, Faith, Hope, and Love. Um, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I thought it was a page-turner. Um, you know, you know I, if nothing else, it's got a really cool cover. It I'm does. It really does. I really you like know, it. I think I, the artwork I, is beautiful. I I, yeah. I wish I had uh, came up with that. It was just some cool artist at IVP, but kind of Picasso-esque. And, yeah. And, uh, for all you left-handed people out there, I, I don't know if uh, the book is a statement about God being left-handed, but there you go. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. I My theory is God is holding an ice cream cone with his right hand and then reaching down with the left. Doesn't want to put the ice cream down. Makes sense, because so. the ice cream's delicious. But that's the God I believe in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sweet, man. That'll be my next book, The God Who Loves Ice Cream. That's good. Yeah. You should try it. I'd buy it. <laughs> Sweet, Curtis. Well, thank you so much. Um, where can... So what What we'll do is we'll be sure, obviously, to link your book in the show notes. Um, but also, where... Is there anywhere else uh, that you would like people to go to find you, like a website or anything like that? Uh, oh, good grief. People can find me on uh, Twitter... Instagram, Facebook. Awesome. Uh, I don't. I don't have a web page, but me neither. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm. I'm. I'm me not three. for that yet. So sweet, awesome, Curtis. Well, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, thank I enjoyed you. it, guys. Yeah, thank you for your work, and um, I really think this was a, a really helpful uh, contribution to open and relational theology. Um, I don't know if you're aware of a, a podcast called You Have Permission. Um, but it's a it's a stellar podcast. Highly recommend checking it out. Dan Koch is the uh, the, the host of that show, 
Um, but I recommended this this book to him um, because he's he's into the, the open and relational stuff. Um, and honestly, I think Dan Dan is way smarter than than we are, and I think he could do a way better job interviewing you than we can. Uh, <laughs> and I told him that. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I appreciate again your time and. Um, for listeners, uh, you can find us on on Instagram and on on Facebook. Don't forget our about our uh, our patron feed. Um, and as always, Marty, go Caps, go Blackhawks, go Ducks.